I think we're drawn into situations such as this because something in us knows. And something in us is interested to know more fully and more deeply what lies at the heart of our life. And this is, it seems to me, essentially concerned with coming to the end of separation. The experience of feeling separate, the habit and tendency of relating in ways that create or reinforce a sense of separation. are very much at the heart of our deepest suffering and distress, our dissatisfaction or unfulfillment, and the resolution, the transformation, the healing of that appearance of separation, the ending of that, is very much at the heart of what we're concerned with, what spiritual practice Dharma teachings are engaged with. And so one of the things that we perhaps notice, and some of you have commented on this in different ways, as we engage in the sitting, the walking, as we engage in the, in the yoga practice and the simply being present with activities of the day, and all of it, in fact, as this process deepens, one of the things that perhaps we start to notice is that some of the hard boundaries begin to soften a little. The edges become a little more blurry. While at the same time as we see things more distinctly, precisely and clearly, we also experience them <coughs> somewhat differently as a result of that. The movement of breathing as we get closer to it, rather than it just being this, well, it's coming in, and that's an in-breath, and then it's going out, and that's an out-breath, as if there were two events called in-breaths and out-breaths, we start to see that, in fact, there's something more fluid going on. And this isn't perhaps news to us, or maybe it is, that we see that, in fact, this flow this ripple, this movement, isn't something we can really break up and say, well, there's this bit separate from that bit. It's just, oh, yes, this out-breath goes out, and then there's a kind of a pause maybe for a little while, and then the in-breath comes in. But if we're really close to it, the way we've called this bit the in-breath and that bit the out-breath doesn't make so much sense anymore. We just see that each moment keeps, we could say, unfolding or flowing into the next, unstoppably, it seems, or ongoingly, it seems. This fluid movement of sensation that we call breathing can't be sort of chopped up into bits. And this body, 
We talk about the body and we talk about different parts of the body and we've been given guidance and instruction on moving different parts of the body and shaping and organizing, exploring it in different ways. And yet, when we start to feel into it, we see this torso with limbs and head, otherwise known as body, that it's a field of vibration, of elemental qualities of pressure, solidity, which is earth element, of warmth, temperature, which is fire element, of movement, and dynamic change, ability, which is air element. And cohesion, it all hangs together somehow, which is water element. And if you wonder about why that is so, and I certainly did the first time I heard it, water element, cohesion, what's that about? Take a pile of dust, add some water, you get clay. Take a pile of flour, add some water, you get dough. Take a human body and remove all the water, it's a pile of dust. Water actually coheres. So in the teaching, this is how it's used. And space. We find space in this. But when we look at it that way, we see that actually, again, it's not that there's all these separate parts. When we look about it or when we label it diagrammatically, scientifically, it seems like there's all these bits, but the inner experience of it is not so. The different energetic, elemental qualities and the different locations we could describe within this body can't really be separated out from each other. We might experience them in a sequence that separates them in time, it seems. There was this and then that. But even that starts to become a little bit less solid as we sink more deeply into the experience when we're not thinking about it so much as knowing it directly and intimately as it reveals itself. The perception of sense objects, of things, sounds, as if they're somewhere that come to us, or sights, as if there's something over there. Sometimes it doesn't quite feel like that. And we might dismiss the feeling, thinking, oh, I've... You know, I've been drinking too much herbal tea or something like that. But I don't think that that's a misunderstanding. The perception of fixed events, of something that happened, if we look at it carefully, we see that it's embedded in something larger and that there aren't so much events as a fluid, dynamic process where we try and pick out and encapsulate segments of it. But to do so is to impose something artificially onto what's actually happening. And that's a lot of the way our conceiving mind works. But when we're not referencing or operating primarily from that so much, experientially, something else is revealed and we begin to actually sense or experience what's happening differently. It makes sense to us in a different way. I mean, if we just feel into our body, and probably all of us would 
be reasonably confident in the assertion that our bottom ends somewhere before the cushion begins. But if you actually try and feel the experience, when you bring your attention down to that part of the body, what does one actually experience or sense directly? is actually a field of pressure and temperature. That's what I primarily get. It feels kind of warm and kind of firm. But is there a place you can put your attention that tells you this bit is cushion and that bit is bottom or the other way around? No. No. There's actually just the experience. And in it, all that is revealed is the meeting place of the two. Not the one and the other, but the meeting, the connection. And ultimately, at a sensory level, experientially, it's a merging of the two. You're only feeling the one because of the other. And they're not in that felt separately. The hard boundaries of our world, our body, ourselves, begin to soften, begin to blur. We start to perhaps feel a little more the, the natural intimacy of just the human experience in itself. This heart, this mind, this body. Someone asked about what do I mean when I say heart. I think probably I mean different things at different times. Sometimes referring to the, the kind of the, the realm of emotional process and experience and the, the underlying kind of factor in that, which is our sense of caring. Now, emotions only happen, all of them, because we care. No emotion makes any sense if we don't care. Even when we feel like we don't care, it's only relevant to us because we care about the fact we don't care. Otherwise, we have no response, no interest in it. So that's one element I talk about with regard when I say heart. It's uh, the sense of caring. But there's also a way in which I might have used it. That's why it was hard for me to answer this question when I got the note. But one of the ways I would also use it sometimes is the larger sense of the way the Buddha talked about our experience. He didn't separate heart and mind so much. He didn't have such separate words for that. There was more the field of sensitivity that we encounter that has part of in its register of experience is the realm of thought and feeling or emotion as we would call it. Um, and the best description I've had for this that one of my teachers uses that I, I really like um, is that which is affected and responds. So it describes the nature of a process that we could call heart. Now we could also call it mind, we could also call it heart-mind, and that's probably the best translation for the word the Buddha used, which is chitta. So we're talking about chitta. When I'm talking about chitta, I'm talking about heart. And heart is that which is affected or impacted, which is sensitive, receptive, feels and responds and of course response includes both our reactivity at times but also our conscious intentional responsivity and so this mind heart and body and again this is another aspect of our experience if we look at them carefully we see how intimate they are with each other we talk about it casually as if there is mind 
and there is the mind thinking, heart feeling, body, you know, walking around, digesting food and having sensations like hot and cold. And we think about these things and science analyzes and dissects sometimes these things as separate things. But if we look closely, what we start to understand is they're profoundly interrelated, interconnected and interdependent. And one of the interesting things that we can see is that the breath conditions the body. This is the Buddha called it, the, uh, the kaya sankara. The conditioner, kaya is body, sankara is conditioner. The conditioner of the body. Oh, actually, yeah, obviously, if the breath wasn't happening, the body is dead. So we see the breathing affects the body profoundly. Without oxygen, body isn't going to be here very long. And that the body conditions the, the heart-mind, the citta. The way our body feels affects profoundly the way we experience our state of mind. We've noticed that, we've looked at that, we've worked with the body directly, seeing how the way we use, hold, attend to, the postures we place the body in, the way we move it, profoundly affects the heart and mind. And there's a prime, like well-being in the body is the primary condition for happiness in the mind. Notice how we feel when the body's not well. Do we feel happy? Not so quickly, not so easily. But again, I'm just describing these. I could say a lot more about how that works. But we see how sometimes, you know, as we've done, you've put your arms up in the air. A few of you I've seen doing it. Well done for you. You know, it's like, oh, the mind can't make itself get bright, but the mind can invite the body to put the arms up in the air. And, and holding the arms up in the air brightens the mind. The body conditions the mind in that way. And then, of course, very interestingly, what we see is that the mind conditions the breathing. The condition of the mind affects how the breathing flows. We can do that intentionally by deciding to take deep breaths or something like that. But actually, if the mind gets agitated, the breath follows. If the mind relaxes, the breath follows. And it's very interesting, that. Because what it's pointing to is that all these different aspects of our experience, we can talk about them as if, as if separate, but they are not. They're so much affecting and affected by each other that it really doesn't make sense to separate them out. For certain purposes we can do that, but not in terms of understanding what is fundamentally here. And so we use these language concepts, and it's useful when we say body, that we know what we're talking about, or mind, or heart, whatever. But questioning, perhaps, or reflecting on whether that's reflecting the deeper reality. Because it's not, this is just one of the areas in which we do this, but it's one very close to us. We equally do it on the basis of saying there's something inside and there's something outside and these two things are separate from each other we tend to think and relate this way very commonly don't we there's something inside and there's something outside but 
if we think if we think about it, if we reflect on that a little bit, it's like, okay, so what's inside? Well, inside, the most inside of the inside is a hollow tube, isn't it? That's the most insidey bit inside is a hollow tube. And that's inside, and we tend to think that's right in the middle of me. But inside that hollow tube, what's in there? We don't tend to think that's me. We tend to think, hmm, chewed up food and something else on its way out. The most inner inner bit of us has got, it feels like it's the outside. It's like there's a hole from here. There's a hole at the bottom. That's the outsidey bit. And it's right on the inside. It's the inside of the inside. This might sound a little silly, but I find it really actually quite interesting to ask, well, where am I in that? Where's the insidest bit? Because the insidest bit is actually feels more like the outside. Like I've got a bit of the outside right on the inside. How can I say there's an outside? Or an inside? It doesn't really make sense if we look at it like that, if we see it more clearly. And certainly if we consider whether any of that is ultimately me, the thing that feels most intimate to me is full of something that absolutely doesn't feel like me. We're obviously a little bit confused in the way we normally think about things. And that's nothing to judge, but to, come to, to contemplate, to reflect upon, and with a lightness, perhaps. This that we call our mind. It feels like the interiority of my sense of experience that for some reason we tend to often locate up here, although it's actually going on in the whole field of our conscious mind-heart-body. But if we stop and contemplate again when we hear a sound, so where does the sound happen? Does the sound happen over there in the radiator where I can, there's that sort of vibration going on as the water's passing through the pipes? Or is the sound happening in here where I'm registering it? Because something in me sort of thinks it's out there. But absolutely for sure, the thing is going on in here, isn't it? I'm not hearing it out there. I'm imagining it's out there, but I'm hearing it in here. I haven't got an ear over there. My ear is not attached to the radiator. It's in here. The sound is on the inside. And yet somehow there's the sense of outside created through the experience of hearing a sound and interpreting it in a particular familiar way. <coughs> and that's just hearing. What about smell? Smell is so evocative for us, isn't it? Someone was commenting in one of the groups a few days ago, I think, about how you smell something and a whole world opens up of memory and association and emotional response. What is the smell? That's your little bit of whatever that thing is getting in your nose, isn't it? It's chemical. It's actually, we don't smell something out there. We only ever smell something when it's actually, it's, it's the chemicals, the atoms, inside the cells or in contact with the cells of our very tissue that register it. And we think, I'm smelling the flower. No, we're not smelling the flower. We're smelling a little bit of the flower that's in your nose. So far in that it might as well be you and not the flower in that moment. And thoughts. We've talked about thoughts. Thoughts seem so intimately inside and me 
but where do they come from? Have you ever wondered about this? I mean, it's not an uncommon thought there. Where are all those thoughts coming from? You know, where do they come from? One of my teachers, early teachers in India, he once said, I remember looking at him saying, you know, you know, thoughts come from outside the mind. I thought, do they? And yet, if you think, if you look at it, yes, actually, where do the thoughts come from? Where do most of our thoughts come from? Well, most of the thoughts, we learnt them from someone else. Have you noticed that? Most of the thoughts we have in our minds were thoughts someone else gave to us by telling us them. And we agreed with them or disagreed with them. But we took them in. How many of the thoughts have we had in our minds that we actually worked out and made up all by ourselves? Very, very, very few. Mostly we got them from someone else. So they're not really ours. And, then, and yet they're really on the inside. They really feel like they're part of my interior reality, these thoughts. From the outside to the inside. And interestingly, so much of the thinking projects and creates a sense of separation, but the very genesis of it, the source of it, is to do with our connectedness. So many of our thoughts were given to us by people who were given the same thoughts by other people, who were given the same thoughts by the people before them, without any of those people realising what they were doing. Until someone stops and thinks, hmm, does this one make sense? Where did that come from? Because they've been happening since as long as we could remember, we tend not to stop and pause in that way. But if we reflect, if we contemplate, sometimes we just get a sense, and I'm not trying to convince you of anything as some absolute, this is how you've got to see it. It's more like, what is it like to contemplate in that way, to reflect in that way, to just have a sense that, oh, some of those things like inside and outside, they're not quite so like two different things. They're just different ways I'm talking about something that isn't quite that. It isn't quite that. And that sense, the sense of separation, the sense of feeling other, apart, that has this, this kind of two-sided aspect to it, that it simultaneously has a sense of over here and over there. Or this and that. Me, you, us, them. And those two things only exist in relationship to each other, have no meaning without their opposite, are dependent upon the opposite and therefore can't be separate from the opposite, can't be separated from their opposite because don't exist without it. Me and you makes no sense. Me makes no sense without you, doesn't exist without you. How can me be separate from you, if that is so? And yet, 
that sense of separation is strong for us. We experience it very clearly in the arising of fear. The sense of danger that has a sense of other associated with it. There's something out there of danger to me. Of danger to me. And this is perhaps what we most fear, ultimately, is the sense of otherness, of distance, of separateness, of being cut off. It's so painful to feel separate, to feel cut off, to feel apart. It's what perhaps we most fear. And because certain aspects of our inner experience are hard for us to handle, we tend to somehow want to push them away. We want to separate them from us. We want to get them out of us in some way. And we tend to project them onto things and situations and circumstances and try and push those away instead. <coughs> and so it's almost like in order to maintain our sense of how we know the world and ourselves, we need to have something else. We need to have that other. And preferably the bad other, so we can be the good me or us. That's how we like it generally, most of us. I was really struck. I was, remember I was travelling in Asia at the time when the, um, the Berlin Wall came down and the, the big bad guys of communism seemed to just dissolve and not be there anymore. Suddenly that whole thing that the whole world I'd been in was so there, the dangerous, bad, other thing out there, communism, was gone. And I was struck within weeks starting to notice articles in the Western media looking at Islam with an attitude of fear or hostility and so much that sense of otherness. And it was like, wow, we can't live for more than a few weeks without something else to make other. And of course, that's within this culture. Any other culture does the same thing. We replicate in our cultures what our minds tend to do and it was really sad to see that for me also realizing how we do that how we make we have to find something else to be other because we somehow trying to locate the source of what we regard as problematic away from ourself when of course it's always an inner experience that's what's difficult for us anything we fear is not the thing out there that we are afraid of. It's the what we imagine we will experience inside if that thing we're afraid of was present. Does that make sense? We're not actually afraid of something or someone out there. We're afraid of how my inner experience will be if that happens or that occurs. Of course, you might say that's a fine distinction to make, but it's seeing, oh, it's the inner experience that counts for us. I don't want someone to hit me with a big stick. I don't. I really don't. I wouldn't like it. But it's because I imagine it's going to hurt and I'm going to feel sensations of pain if that happens. And that attempt to somehow push outside of ourself the experience of the unpleasant, the painful, the unwished for inner experience, which 
Obviously, we can't push that outside of ourselves because it's happening in here. But the attempt to do that ends up creating a sense of separateness. We need to create the separateness in order to have somewhere to put that. And yet it's a fabrication. I was really struck um, just a couple of weeks ago. I, I had the good fortune to be walking in the mountains and, um, in, in, in southern France, uh, in the Mercantour National Park, where there are wolves wild wolves that have come across the border from Italy in the last 30 years. I didn't see any out in the wild, but it was kind of exciting knowing they were out there. Probably, you know, maybe I could imagine they were keeping an eye on me from a safe distance, but maybe they were further away than that. And then later I actually went to a wolf sanctuary in the, in the park where they've actually got some in a, you know, a large wildlife enclosure. They've got three packs of wolves. And one of the things that struck me was that they were talking about the history of our culture with the wolves and how in Europe from the time of Charlemagne and on, the wolf slowly became a vilified creature, which it wasn't until then. It wasn't the bad guy in all of the fairy tales before then. But there was so much, the way they described it, there was so much horror and violence in the medieval period, so much death and cruelty and hatred, that there was a need to make something really bad out there that we could hate. Because otherwise it was us. Look at what we're doing. And it was really interesting to see, oh, even then, and of course then, as a result of that, they, the wolf populations in most of Europe were slowly exterminated. And quite cruelly, they hung wolves by the neck. And I saw pictures of this, and they, things like, it's like, oh wow, what's going on here? It's like we're somehow trying to get something out of us and exterminate it externally. When it's never going to be removed from us that way. So part of what the healing of this sense of separateness, of disconnection, of apartness, and the alienation and the loneliness that that brings, part of how this is, what's required for this to be possible is that we actually turn to and embrace the dimensions and realms of our own experience which we find scary and difficult to encounter. And we've talked about doing this. We've looked at different aspects of this along the way. But just kind of locating it within this understanding, locating that process of including the difficult within the understanding of what transforms, what dissolves, what resolves the experience of separation and heals that most fundamental wound in the in the human heart, the human being, the human life. The, even the very experience of otherness or separateness is actually a part of what we are. It doesn't define what we are. It's not a statement of the truth of how things are, but the subjective experience of it is part of what we experience and need to understand. And really the call here is to trust our life and our experience, even when it is challenging to us. To open into the places we might otherwise say, I'm not really sure I want to open to this. Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke writes, he says, We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world. It is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. 
If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with this principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. I find this an incredibly beautiful articulation of some profound understanding. And when I, maybe not the first time, but on reading it and reflecting on it, I'm struck by how I always thought that you kill the dragon to save the princess. Isn't that what the story's told us? And you realize, oh, actually, what it's pointing to is something deep there. It's like facing those things that we most feel different than and feel most scared by reveals something which is precious, which is beautiful, which is vulnerable. We can call that the princess, perhaps. And we love it. Or her. But what that is comes from facing that which we might initially wish to run away from. And so we are invited to bring, as much as we're able, this caring, this love, this kindliness, to embrace and support us in having the courage to enter into the places that are dark, unknown to us yet. So we are invited to look at our experience, to look at the way in which we construct it. The subjective experience is not something that has an intrinsic way it must be. One of the interesting things that happens in meditation is we start to experience things differently. And it doesn't mean that the different version of experience is now that's the real one and the other one wasn't true. It's that, oh, when people describe unusual or sometimes, you know, inexplicable ways of experiencing where the body might just suddenly feel vast and expansive. And it's not like really my body is 16 feet tall and 8 feet wide, but it feels that way. Or it's not as if, in fact, everybody is glowing, but, but they are. So it's, it's <coughs> if I'm saying that well... There's a way in which we get opened to the, by the recognition that there are different ways we can experience and perceive. And one or the other is not ultimate. Including, of course, the conventional version of me over here and you over there. It has its validity. It's useful to understand that when it comes to breakfast time, if I've got a bowl of porridge and a spoon, it's best I stick it in this mouth. Because if I try and put it in one of the other mouths, things are going to get really complicated very quickly. It makes absolute sense. Except in the occasional relationship of perhaps a parent to the child where sticking that porridge spoon in their mouth actually makes sense. Apart from that, it just doesn't. 
And yet there's other ways in which that idea makes of me and you, separate selves, makes no sense at all. And so examining our perception of separation, of boundaries, of separateness, seeing what it is that when we talk about our hand and our foot, what we're talking about is a hand and a foot. It's obvious, isn't it? We've all got, well, most of us here, I think, have got a couple of each. I haven't checked carefully to be knowing for sure, so apologies if I've missed something there. But hand, foot, what's that? Where is the place where a hand stops and the foot starts? Can you show me that? Can you find it on yourself? Where does the one end and the other begin? It's a hand-foot. It's the only meaningful way to talk about it when you look at that. This doesn't stop. This has a different function than that. Sure, most of the time. But that's a function. That's not a separate existence. And so easily we take that view of things. A different function means a separate existence. But no, it doesn't. Completely connected. The blood rushing through this bit is rushing through that bit moments later, and vice versa. Where is the separateness? That the language clearly, and the picture, the image, hand, foot, gives us in our mind of two things different from each other. And I've talked about, you know, the sense of you and me. Yeah, sure. Different, you know, places to put the porridge spoon, of course. But, Right now, sitting here. You know, we might think, oh yeah, I quite like that interconnected sort of stuff when people talk about it. Sharing oxygen with the trees, it sounds kind of lovely, doesn't it? comes out of the leaves, I breathe it in. Mm, very nice. Oh, I breathe out some carbon dioxide, it goes into the leaves of trees. They suck it up and make glucose and things with it. Great, you know, keeps us happy and nourished. It's not just the trees, you know. Some of what you're breathing in was breathed out by your neighbours just moments ago. Mmm, how's that? <laughs> And it wasn't just breathed out from the outside of their nostril, it went all the way into their lungs. Some of it even went right in to the cells of their body and came out a bit different. And then we sucked that right into ours. Whoa, we've been doing that all day. All week, for the whole of our life, we've been doing that with everything and everyone around us. That's pretty intimate. That's got beyond... I was going to say exchanging bodily fluids, and now I have. Um, it's all in my notes. But it's like, wow, that's pretty intimate, isn't it? That's pretty intimate. But we don't quite acknowledge that that's what's happening most of the time. It's a remarkable intimacy we're sharing. No wonder we feel quite friendly with each other, some of the time at least. And in a place like this, actually, it's interesting how that sense of warmth and friendliness grows, even though we're not chatting or sharing our stories or talking about the things that we love so much. But something happens, something goes on here. Through the process of this practice and how it works, that sense of separateness begins to soften. Whether we like it or not, whether we're in favour of that idea or opposed to it, it's pretty well unstoppable. 
over time, that the sense of separateness begins to feel less solid. Experience gets in. Have you noticed how it gets in? How sometimes we're touched, we're pierced, we're moved by something? And we feel it? The sensitivity of the human being is remarkable? And, you know, maybe something we've seen, maybe something we've heard of some expression of kindness, someone just pausing in the hallway to allow another to go past. We just feel, oh wow, how beautiful. Just a simple thing like that. Or, or we notice the, the light shining through a drop of dew and it just sparkles in a way that the heart vibrates, resonates, wants to dance. Or we see the something that touches us. We feel the sorrow of some creature's situation. Perhaps the rabbit that didn't quite make it across the road. And we go, oh, knowing it's our people, our species driving cars that do that to small bunny rabbits, even if it wasn't me personally. Or a loud noise, just suddenly a bang and oh, sensitive. That sensitivity, things get in. They get in. If we were separate from each other, we would not be affected by each other. If what I was over here was something separate from what you are over there, what you did or felt or experienced or what happened to you would have no effect on me. But it does. It does profoundly affect me. If we allow ourselves to be open to it, we know this. That's a challenging condition, so we don't always let ourselves be open to this. In fact, we're mostly educated to think it's a really bad idea to be open to this. But for our very survival as a species and on a planet, we need to be open to this. To be touched and affected by each other. Because it's speaking to us of how we cannot be separate from each other. If we were apart, how could we be touched? How could we be affected? And yet we're affected so deeply. We sometimes see little creatures and we can feel that we have no idea what it's like inside them for their life, what their experience is like. I've got no idea what it's like to be a little creature. I really don't. But at some level when I watch them and I see if they feel threatened how they run away. If they see food, they run towards it. That's about as much as I know about little creature behaviour. But it doesn't look that, that different to me. <laughs> it just doesn't. And it's like, if I stop and let that in, it's like, oh, oh wow. It's like I'm full of little creatures that do that. Every cell in my body is like one of those little creatures. Gets excited when something good is coming. Tries to pull away when something not so good looks like it's coming. We call that contracting and expanding when we do the whole body. But each little cell is acting out just like those little creatures that we can see. And we're part of this field of sensitivity that we find ourselves actually naturally caring for. We naturally feel a sense of 
warmth and concern for the life of others, when we start to see that we're not so different, not only not different, we're not so separate. This is me too. I feel it. I feel it. And not just living things, but inanimate things too. We can feel that when we're sensitive. I mean, we're made up of the raw materials of the earth. And it's alive. The wonderful American poet Mary Oliver, she writes this poem entitled Some Things Say the Wise Ones. She says, some things say the wise ones who know everything are not living. I say, you live your life your way and leave me alone. I have talked with the faint clouds in the sky as they're, when they're afraid of being left behind. I have said, hurry, hurry. And they have said, thank you, we are hurrying. About cows and starfish and roses, there is no argument. After all, they die. But water is a question. So many living things in it, but what is it itself? Living or not? Oh, gleaming generosity. How can they write you out? As I think this, I'm sitting on the sand beside the harbour. I'm holding in my hand small pieces of granite, pyrite, schist, each one just now so thoroughly asleep. What is this life that's happening here? When the very raw materials around us, we somehow make somehow not part of life, and yet the very substances of stone and rock and sand and all of that is exactly what our bodies are built of. And even the bare primary characteristics of matter with no apparently sort of organic life feature to it, it seems. Even that expresses something of this connection. You know what the fundamental forces in the universe are. There's a million different things going on, it seems, but there's really just a couple of things that are actually making it all happen, as far as our science can tell us. There's the strong force and the weak force. The strong force is the thing that holds atoms together, basically, that connects the differently charged polarities of protons and electrons to each other. I don't know how much, at which point in science this comes through and whether that makes sense, just saying it. But that's basically it. That's the strong force. It's pretty hard to get those things apart, and if you do, it creates a really loud explosion, and you don't want to be there. It's that strong. That's the strong force. The weak force, this is the one I find more fascinating in a way, although that one expresses the same thing. The weak force is the one that we call, that expresses itself in what we call gravity. What's gravity? You know, we all know what gravity is, isn't it? Gravity is what makes you fall down as opposed to up. But what it actually is, is described in layperson's language, 
it means that anything that has mass or has matter exerts an attraction towards anything else that has matter equal to the amount of matter that it has. So the more matter, the more attraction. We call that gravity. I call it, oh, actually matter wants to be close to itself. It wants to be close to any other expression. Anything that has matter wants to be close to everything else. And the bigger it is, the more it wants to be close to it. That's what it's actually expressing. And you know, without it, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? The fact that gravity is here means that we are here. Without it, we wouldn't be here. We're only here because the earth holds her, us to her. And we, in a very minor way, hold her to us. Perhaps it wouldn't be unreasonable to conclude that even molecules care. Because that's what they express, the wish to be close. Well, how do you express caring? Wish to be close to that which we care for. That's how it works, isn't it? There's not much else to it, the bottom line. Maybe that's what's actually going on here. We're learning and understanding slowly but steadily what it means to be so close to everything around us and within us that ultimately there is no gap between. It's a poem by Liesl Mueller I'd like to read. I'll give you the title when I've read it to you, but uh, for those who, as I didn't when I first heard it, for those who might not be familiar with the images, it's clearly drawing on the images of the work of um, the artist Monet. Um, quite well-known images for those who might know about such things. And fortunately, the, the cultural framework of my upbringing in small rural New Zealand town didn't include that. But uh, there you are. We can still... You know, we can learn as we go. Anyway, here's the poem. It starts, it's this, and it's obviously a conversation. Or it says, Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris. And what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all of my life to arrive at a vision of gas lamps as angels to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret, I do not see. To learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years ago, I could not see Rouen Cathedral is full of parallel shafts of sunlight. And now you want to restore my youthful errors? Fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers? What can I say to convince you? The Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames. I will not return to a universe of objects that do not know each other. 
as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it, to paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones, skins, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinity, how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world. Blue vapour without end. And the poem is entitled, Monet Refuses the Operation. <laughs> and so what's here, the fundamentals of human life, the human heart, human understanding, seems to me is that we have a natural, inherent and unstoppable capacity for love. It's part of what we are, it's how we come in. We don't need to learn how to do that. We might have learned some unhelpful things about that along the way, most of us did. But that basic humanity and natural capacity for caring, for love, it, it stands at the bottom of all that moves in this life. But so much of how it moves is informed by not fully yet understanding the way things are. The tendency to identify with a partial, with a limited, with a reduced version of the totality of things. To identify with me and mine and what I feel close to, myself, my body, my family, my social class, my ethnic group, my religious community, my species, my genera or phylum or class, you know, we tend to get a, feel a bit closer to mammals than reptiles, have you noticed? The tendency to identify in that way separates things in a way that we don't actually allow the natural and potentially boundless loving of our hearts to touch all things. And this is painful both to our hearts and to the world, to have that natural capacity constrained by the way we identify with and circumscribe the field of care in a way that limits it to just what I take to be me and mine. When we see through, when we start to understand the, the constructed and illusory nature of the separation that that sense of me and mine creates, and the pain that we experience caught in the separateness 
it relies upon all the perception and the belief the investment and the separateness that it relies upon we can find that the heart naturally begins to open out begins to no longer hold back its natural capacity its boundless capacity the Buddha spoke of our capacity to to cherish all beings with a boundless heart he said as a mother would cherish her only child so too with a boundless heart we can cherish all beings all of life to allow that natural caring to flow unhindered into the world when the love that is at the very core of what it is to be not just human but any expression of life animate or inanimate when that is not restricted by the identifying with the separate location that it's imagined to emerge from it's naturally unbounded it's naturally boundless infinite and the life that that reveals is unbounded it is free and sometimes the love flows here there or somewhere else it's not that it has to always go in all directions at once in terms of the actions that flow from it but that the fundamental position in which healing in which fullness in which completion is known is that place from which the heart is unhindered in its movement in all directions in which separation is no longer the reality that informs the movement of love and care in the world to know a life that is unbounded a love that is boundless and an intimacy with all things this is the invitation of our practice and the potential that can be known by us all So let's sit quietly together for a few moments.
So may we all, in our practice here together, and in our lives, may we come to deeply understand for ourselves the emptiness of separateness and separation, to know the profound intimacy of our interconnection with all things. And may the boundless capacity of our heart find its way to offer into this world the love that the world needs and that our heart needs to offer for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. So please continue with your practice. 